live from the International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas in New Haven. It's an on-the-road episode of The Colin McEnroe Show. We're live from the study, a beautiful hotel on Chapel Street. And we have a wonderful audience here with us, too. Right, audience? So this is The Notes, our regular Friday roundtable about culture, but a little bit different because we're on the road, we're in New Haven, we got New Haven people, and we got actually one of the performers from the International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas uh, with us. Uh, and boy, uh, Benny Klein and I were there last night, and we were just blown away by this show. Uh, Roger Genver-Smith, did I do it right? Did I do the Genver part, part right? Yeah, right. Smith is perfect. Yeah, Smith. I said Smith <laughs> very well. Roger Genver-Smith, he's an American actor, director, and writer. He's performing at the festival right now in a one-man, well, I guess we're not supposed to say one man show we're supposed to say kind of a prayer and almost kind of it's almost like watching somebody do an epic poem really about uh the rodney uh, king case in uh, in los angeles in 91 and 92 and, and the aftermath um so we're uh, roger's been kind enough to join us for our conversation today sitting next to him uh, is Vinnie klein she is a psychotherapist which uh, is, may be useful on the nose uh, and a lecturer in the department of psychiatry at yale her memoir blows to the head how Boxing Changed My Mind came out in 2010. She does a weekly show on WPKN as well. Uh, Roger's already been on that one. He's making the rounds. Uh, and also joining us is Mark Oppenheimer, uh, the owner of the best managed career in American journalism, <laughs> the only uh, person ever to write for the Christian Century, Century and Playboy. Uh, he now writes for the New York Times Magazine, The Believer, Salon, Slate, Mother Jones, The Nation, Road and Track, uh, Bon Appetit, Gun and Garden, um, all of them really. And <laughs> does a he does a bi-weekly column about religion for the New York Times and a monthly column about fatherhood for the New Republic. So that's all we have time for, really. But thanks for coming out. <laughs> um, and no, we're going to. I mean, how can we not? Particularly after um, seeing Roger's uh, performance last night, how can we not begin by talking about Charleston later in the show? We all of us saw the movie Love and Mercy, uh, the Beach Boys or the Brian Wilson biopic, which is basically, besides Charleston, the only thing that public radio is covering right now. It's been on, it was on Terry Gross's show yesterday, it was on Studio 360. It's, it's, it's our only other topic, really. Uh, but but we're all, we all have things to say about that. If we have time, we'll also talk about a proposed change in the $10 bill. There's been a long uh, conversation about how to get somebody who's not a white male uh, onto our currency. Uh, if we have time, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, we do want to begin uh, with Charleston. And I'm going to begin also just with, um, uh, to me, I mean, Charleston is so many different things. But to me, one of the things that's sort of very important is how things get talked about and how things get framed and how things get said. And one of the ways we began in a very disturbing note was this sort of blunt attempt to frame it as something else. Uh, I was... Uh, combing the web today and watching some clips and, and to a startling degree there were people like Lindsey Graham and Rick Santorum, both presidential candidates, saying this was an attack on religion. Um, and uh, Graham uh, said, now in fairness, a lot of this happened yesterday morning still. Um, and he said, it's 2015, there are people out there looking for Christians to kill them. Uh, Rick Santorum said a, a similar thing, that this was part of a, a series of attacks on faith. Uh, he said, you, you just can't think that things like this can happen in America. It's obviously a crime of hate. Again, we don't know the rationale, but what, what other rationale could there be? You're sort of lost that somebody could walk into a Bible study in church and indiscriminately kill people. Um, no mention of this being uh, about race. And uh, th there have been similar uh, remarks. Uh, Fox News aired a whole segment about this. Uh, watch the Larry M uh, Wilmore clip in which he sort of does kind of a supercut of all these kinds of comments. But uh, Mark Oppenheimer, since you write 
write about religion for the New York Times. Is there some kind of systematic uh, <laughs> attempt uh, to eradicate Christianity in America? Because I, this not, is the first I heard anymore. of. Not anymore. It's not anymore. No, yeah. it's it's uh, that 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 did not ring true to me as somebody who's been writing about religion for uh, almost 20 years now. I I don't think there's any pattern of attacks on churches. I don't think that um, uh, th that's that you know. Fox News likes to say there's an entire war on Christmas every year. Mm -hmm. um, there's more of a war on Christmas than there is on Christians, let mm -hmm. me say. I mean, and so I, that that struck me as cynical. I think that there's, um, I mean, I we don't know very much about this person yet, and I'm, I do hesitate to say, but what we know suggests that he was more motivated by an animus against black people than against Christian people. Um, so th that strikes me as th the way to interpret it at this point. But I would love for there to be one other data point of there being a war against Christians uh, in America. I know what Rick Santorum would say. I mean, he would say, I assume that he's trying to yoke this to um, what he would call the attack on traditional marriage um, and what he would call the, the uh, effort by the Obama administration to make Christians cover in their employees' health plans, birth control methods that they don't believe in. I mean, he would see this all as one thing. I just can say that as someone who talks to a lot of Christians, including, uh, and a lot of non-Christians, that I've never found the evidence of any sort of concerted attack on Christianity. Well, and, and Roger, one thing that I'm wondering too, when this kind of thing happens, and there does seem to be this kind of concerted effort on, among one group of people, to make it not be about race. What's the upside of that? I mean, it seems to me that you can decide that it's about race. It pretty clearly is about race. I mean, yeah, there's still some fog of war here. We don't know every single thing. We, we got reports about what was said, but this isn't really a very mysterious situation. This does appear to have been a racially motivated attack. Why wouldn't everybody want to talk about it as a racially motivated attack and then say whatever they've got to say about race? Because we're living in a country full of racial denialists. I take the attack very personally. My mother's from Charleston, South Carolina. I took my children to Charleston, South Carolina for the first time just a couple of weeks ago, and we had to pass by that church on our way to Fort Sumter, mm -hmm. where I showed my sons where the Civil War started and apparently never ended. Denmark Vesey um, was a congregant at that church. Um, because of his attempted uh, slave insurrection in 1822, that church was burned to the ground. It was his son who rebuilt the church, uh, Denmark Vesey. And um, we must uh, understand this idea of history. This church is on John C. Calhoun Street. John C. Calhoun is the name of a college right here at Yale University uh, where we're sitting right now. Um, he was a nullificationist. There is a great statue of him um, just a stone's throw away from that church. It sits high on a pedestal. It used to sit low on a seat. And black folks in Charleston, South Carolina, used to go and put feces on his lap and burn it. And because of what black people did in resistance to the segregationist uh, ideology of John C. Calhoun, uh, inherited by Strom Thurmond, of course, and we can talk about his family matters in a second. <laughs> but um, it was because of that that they had to raise the statue onto a pedestal and wave it high as the Confederate flag waves over the South Carolina State Building today, <laughs> not at half-mast. You know, Benny, last night you and I were at uh, Roger's performance, and so many of the things that are talked about in that performance from 1991 and 1992 seem largely unchanged. And I, 
I find myself thinking now that certainly in the time, there's sort of a time span that I think starts with Trayvon Martin and goes forward and includes Ferguson and Baltimore and Eric Garner and, and this whole series of things. But I feel like all of us are falling into a little bit of a, a ritualized response to it where, like, you know, I read the Jelani Cobb article and then I read the Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates article and I wait for the president to come on television and talk about it. And, and meanwhile, Fox News, they do sort of their thing. And I, I wonder if we are getting any better at talking and thinking about this or are we just kind of learning our lines? I see it as this rapid metabolizing of trauma in the culture. It goes in really quick and then people attempt to co-opt it. And that's what I see is happening with the Christian right. They want to have victim affiliation. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know what to use as the language to talk about this. So there's this rush to move it through categories, hate crime, domestic terrorism. Someone has pointed out that when whites traditionally do these acts of mass violence, they're considered mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Whereas when African-Americans and other minorities do, it's terrorism and thugs. So I think that there's this rush to metabolize and of course the rush to say, well, what can we learn from this? This is what always blows my mind about all of these events is that it's as if we can work through the stages of grief in response to violence that people are still calling unspeakable, unthinkable, which by the way, it's not, it can't be. We're mm. speaking about it and we have to think about it. And then we're going off to closure. Mm -hmm. The land of closure. And, you know, Mark, you and I were talking before the show, you know, when you see something like this, one of the questions you have right away, and it's not a question we really have answered yet, is, you know, is who's this person? Is, is he, in fact, part of a movement? It seems to me that it would be hard to be living in South Carolina and not, at least by os os osmosis, be affected by stuff like the Confederate flag and stuff like that. But is he part of a movement or I, does it make more I sense? I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll find out, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's um, you know, there are a lot of racists and most of them aren't murderers, right? Mm -hmm. um, th that doesn't diminish the problem of, of racism. Uh, and, you know, I actually think, Vinny, I don't, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you here, but I, I'm less interested, I mean, th in, I think, I think this is very real, this sort of cycle of, of, res of response to trauma. But I don't, it's not an interest, to me what's interesting is how we avoid doing what we have to do, which is looking at systemic ways to curb violence in society, right? I mean, this is, this is a number of things. This is an attack on African Americans. It's an attack on African American Christians. It's a product of a racial culture uh, and, and a racist culture in a particular region of this country that has its own history. It's also deeply American in that it's, you know, someone with a gun and in, in a part of the country that's, that's hostile to gun control. Now, we know there are mass killings in places that have really strong gun control laws. I'll, do, I'll, I'll preempt the NRA response and say, we know that, right? Um, you know, ask the Jews who were killed in Belgium. Ask, was it Norway where there was the mass killing? Yes. It was 70 people or something, right? So it's not that there's any one panacea. But I'm actually less interested. I don't feel traumatized by acts of violence thousands of miles away from me. I'll say that. Even when it's on people who look like me and who I think that could be my daughter, okay? Um, but, you know, I, we live in an incredibly brutal world, and I'm somewhat desensitized uh, to that. What I'm much more interested in is how do we ensure that there's less killing? You know, what, what are political and systemic responses? And, and that's, that's what all this other talk obscures, I think. I, I think that's interesting, Mark, because John Stewart said something about how the language, we're already now steeped in what he called the nuances of language of no, lack of effort. In other words, lack of response to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. 
But I do feel traumatized. Mm. I felt traumatized by the Rodney King performance last night. And well, I'm yeah, me too. glad that I did. But you know, this, watching you do that performance, Roger, too, it's Jelani Cobb in writing about this did say that this, that the Charleston is at the crossroads of Ferguson and Aurora, Colorado, you know, or at the crossroads uh, of Baltimore and pick your other, another, and Columbine, pick another mass shooting. And, you know, listening to your uh, uh, performance last night, one of the other stories that you went into, one that I think most people had completely forgotten, was that of uh, Latasha Harnick, am I getting that name? Oh, Harlan's. Harlan's. Um, a young woman kind of caught up in some of these spirals of violence and, and in a store buying orange juice and getting into a dispute with the owner who had a gun and, and who, who shot her in the back of the head, you know? And listening to, I mean, I, your performance last night made me think, wow, we just live in this really, really violent society you know, where we just go from zero to the red zone very, very fast. We do, but let's acknowledge how we got here mm -hmm. since 1492. Um, it's, uh, it's a journey that's been paved with blood. And we look at uh, the island of Hispaniola today where uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent are being deported mm -hmm. because they're... Uh, Dominican citizenship is no longer valid because they have Haitian ancestry. This is, uh, this is payback for a Haitian revolution of some hundreds of years ago, you see, which is still being played out, which is still in progress, which is what brought my people to Charleston in the first place. And I went to visit my ancestors in the cemetery there in Charleston, but I couldn't go to just one cemetery. I had to go to two. Why? Because they're divided by race. Yeah. The dead people in my family, and they're divided by language. Tombstones in French, tombstones in English. My family became colorized, the Genvers, in mid-19th uh, century Charleston. And all of that plays out. What did Faulkner say? It ain't past. It's still kicking ass. Did he um, say that? Yeah. No, I don't think he put it like exactly that. that. No, okay. very close. Um, the past well, you know, isn't dead. It's not even past. Something. The um, by the way, we do it. We will have a floating <laughs> mic, and towards the end of this segment, if somebody's got something that they want to ask or say, we'd love to have you. I just, I think yeah. we're yeah, we're all, you know, uh, you're an actor, and we're writers, and I mean, we're all artists here, right? And so I think our interest is, you know, maybe we can sort of process this through na through narrative, right? And I guess, I mean, that's the first thing I would do is like, what essay can I write about this? Right? Yeah. Mm. But actually, that doesn't change. I really, I mean, I, I'm, let me speak to the impotence of that. It doesn't change much. What changes much? I mean, Europe was an exceedingly brutal place in 1492. It's a more humane place in many ways than the United States is now with regard to violence anyway. And so the question is, well, what have they done? Mm. I mean, there are actually, there are laws, there are movements, there are, there are social uh, movements and political movements that make place, I mean, of course, it was a substantially brutal place in the mid-1940s. Well, right? yeah, let's you flip know, nine, 1492 you know, so, to 1942. Let's flip it, right? Yeah. But, and, and things can turn on a dime. And the question is, well, how do societies mend themselves? And, you know, while I'd like to think that our essays and our performances and our writing and, and even our analysis are, are a piece of it, they're not as good as good laws. True, but I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to ask about this anyway, and, and Roger, I was thinking about this last night, watching your performance, and I was thinking, well, first of all, and Benny, I don't know if you had the same ex experience, but I was aware of the fact that 
Rodney King was this idea that I have as a kind of latent thing in my head that I, you know, I kind of, I mean, I, I lived through it, or I, I experienced it the way that most of America did anyway. And, and I feel it's a story that I know. Watching Roger last night, I thought, wow, there's just so much about this story that I either never absorbed in the first place or discarded at some point. And that one of the things that art could do for me last night was reacquaint me with this and, and help me understand it's it's just absolutely you know direct connections to the present moment and that art really is kind of amazing that way although I also feel and maybe this is what you're saying Mark too is that watching what happened in Baltimore and then the fact that everybody had to invoke the wire well this is just like the wire <laughs> this is and not that the wire didn't get a lot of things right it really did but I thought wow is this the way is this the way we process stuff it reminds me of this thing I saw on television. And I, I feel like that's sort of a knife's edge that art is, too. It's, in one way, an amazing way to get us acquainted with our own reality. But you don't want it to be the, I mean, what he's saying, too, is it can't be the only way that we get acquainted, I guess. Absolutely not. Because if that were the case, then, you know, we would have been saved because Barack Obama listened to a lot of Bob Marley at Occidental College. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know that he did? We know absolutely that he did, and we knew exactly what he was doing while he was listening. <laughs> but he didn't take it to heart. Yeah. And did you have a similar reaction, Benny? I, I felt like art was somehow or other, I, I don't want to only understand Baltimore through the wire. On the other hand, I was really grateful for this kind of renewed understanding of this thing that's become this latent historical artifact. Well, yeah, time. like to come back to the idea of sort of co-opting language, and quickly moving through stuff. What I appreciated a lot about the Rodney King performance was that anyone like Rodney King or these other names becomes something of a cipher mm. over time with all kinds of projections onto them. So yeah, we have the image of that, what I thought was the first perverse viral video where I would be watching a man getting beaten within an inch of his life over and over and over and over. And of course, as Mark implies, we get a bit inured, we get a bit, you know, you get numb. But by you, as you had said, Roger, opening yourself as a kind of vessel to channel aspects of Rodney King and aspects of what he represented in the culture. Well, aspects also, hopefully, of ourselves. Because um, the piece is full of self-indictment. How do you mean? How I mean is that, you know, I was part of that vicarious crowd as well mm -hmm. that consumed Rodney King. I rewound him. I fast-forwarded him. I, I freeze-framed him, you know? And um, there's a moment in, in the piece where people start laughing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, as the narrator, turns on, on the audience, mm -hmm. not directly, it's actually through an imagined conversation, as you recall, with yeah. Rodney King, where I say, they're laughing at you. They're laughing at you right now mm. in New Haven, Connecticut. You're the butt of a joke. They have no idea that you are a father, a grandfather, who expired on Father's Day, the same way that your father expired. You found him, didn't you, Rodney, in his bathtub, drowned, drunk? You're a second-generation alcoholic drowning victim. Um, it's a very powerful moment, including that, and he does, Roger coaxes a laugh out of us and then kind of 
Uh, Don't spoil it. I won't. Okay, I won't. I won't. I won't say. I won't say what the laugh is. <laughs> you just spoiler alert. You just gave us the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, there's so much more. So um, we're running out of time in this segment. Although the one thing, the other the thought I had last night was, uh, and I think Roger says that you know Rodney in some ways is the first reality show star uh, because because of this what was then a really kind of fortuitous, if that's the right word, um, accident of this guy who really had a new video camera that he was trying out, sitting out uh, outside the apartment building where, where all this was happening. Whereas today, Mark, one of the things, one of the realities is that this kind of video is just a, almost a given now. It's not a given in every single situation. Almost, thank God, it wasn't a given in Charleston. But, I mean, so many times now, the, the assumption is we're, that we're going to get to watch the video. And there's this great passage in Don DeLillo's Underworld where he talks about that, how we kind of learn to watch those videos and that we've seen... Well, it's you know you're talking about rewinding. It's kind of you see it over and over again. You start to know, okay, this is the point where the gun sticks out the window of the car, or this is the point where the iron club comes down. And and I, in some ways, it makes us very alive to this stuff. But you know, I wonder don't, whether don't it also it desensitizes well, us too. yes, it's also preferable to the age in which in which all of this stuff went unvideotaped, right? right? I mean, I think that you know some some people have this sense that we're in the midst of some sort of epidemic of this stuff. I actually think. Quite to the contrary, we're in, in the midst of an epidemic of all of a sudden getting stuff on videotape that's been happening all along. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that, I mean, my, you know, my father did police brutality work in Springfield, Massachusetts, where I grew up. I mean, he, he knew people walked in the door of his law office and said that they'd been clubbed or beaten or what. I mean, but there was no evidence ex except the bruises, right? And what, what we have now is a world where just in the past three or four years, we all are walking around with video cameras. So there's going to be a lot more of it on video. That, that's what we're getting. Um, we're almost out of time here. Is, is there anybody who wanted uh, There is actually, uh, where's Jules? Or who's got the mic? Yeah, Jules. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Chime right now. You have to say it right into the mic or we won't. Take the microphone. Take the mic. You have to take the microphone from the menu. There we go. Um, I'm struck by the fact that uh, um, over the centuries, the, the main issue with violence has always been when difference and uh, the relationship to the other became dehumanizing the other. And I, and I think that's been, that's been something we haven't been able to not deal with. And the ISIS craze and various other things have brought that into sharp focus again. That when individuals aren't respected or not seen as... But the most common kind of violence is actually partner violence. I mean, it's people beating people whom they haven't dehumanized, whom they know all too well. I think the problem is that we're fallen creatures, that there's a lot of evil. And societies can take steps to, to curb that and to manage and to have good laws and effective policing to make themselves more humane. But I actually think, I think it does violence a disservice to think it's only when we radically dehumanize some other. Often no, it's someone... Not only. No, I, well. I was thinking about that, that pat particular pattern of violence, mm. that that is something that is, both, um, that is both counteracted by artistic portrayals of individuals. And, um, and I think that that's, that can be quite a force for... Uh, the antidote, that's all. Go see Roger's show. Uh, yeah. I was just yeah. going to say that, you know, Susan Sontag's work on regarding the pain of others, mm. it talks somewhat to what the, the uh, audience member mentioned. There's a difference between seeing a photograph over and over and over of a child starving and the vulture nearby. I mean, that just haunts me. Mm. But a show like Roger's has a different... I don't even know how to describe it. Maybe you can you can do it better than I, Colin. But there's a more experiential aspect to it, so that it's not just a passive witnessing it's over the, and over. And it's over. theater, isn't that? What, I mean, that's what the, that's 
why that's what theater does really well, I would say. Well, actually, I, I sort of wondered about you last night, Roger. At the end of this piece, you, you sort of recomposed yourself pretty quickly and then took questions from the audience, although you were... I just... I, I was amazed that you could do that because it's so, it's clear that you put yourself through a lot during that piece that you, you know, even though you've done the piece many, many times now that you're sort of, you're pushing your own emotions out into this area. And there's also so much of what you do is done in a whisper rather than a scream. And you, one feels this incredible holding back that you're doing too. I, I don't know how, how emotionally exhausted from the humanity of all this are you at the end of a, a performance? Well, I really wanted a hamburger <laughs> last night, and, and I got one. I was lucky. Yeah. And, uh, was it good? It was. It was quite satisfying, and, and I slept well last night, um, despite the self-traumatization that I volunteered myself for. Oh, we're going to have one more question? Okay, sure. Go ahead. I'm interested in the comments, of, and I, I was very aware, for instance, of Rick Santorum saying that this was really about hatred of Christians, made me nuts. Uh, but what I'm wondering, particularly about what Vinny was saying, is uh, where do you think that comes from? Is this a, you know, in, please include me too, notice me? Is it a way, and it may be all of these, is it a way of diminishing what's happening to the other, or is it a way of saying, me too, me too, me too, you know, I'm, 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 I'm suffering too, and all of you people out there aren't paying attention to that. I'm wondering if it might actually be an attempt to minimize. And I'm not sure where that comes from, but to minimize the blatant racism. Now we're going to split it off a little bit. We're going to dilute it now into the fact that they were in a church. We're going to focus on that. Yeah, I, I, go ahead. Well, you, you mentioned Trayvon Martin earlier in our conversation, and let me ask this question. If a 21-year-old uh, black man uh, wearing symbology of black racist um, ideology had walked into a white congregation in observation, would 911 not have been involved in some way? Yet, this young white man, allegedly, I'm being legal here, walked into this black congregation and was welcomed, which says a lot about black Christianity, mm -hmm. which says a lot about the experience, the ongoing experience of black people in this hemisphere. Bob Marley, I talked about him a little earlier, had a line that said, um, Build your penitentiaries. We built your schools. Brainwash education to make us the fools. Hatred your reward for our love, telling us of your Lord above. And then the conclusion was we're going to chase those crazy, chase those crazy, chase those crazy bald heads out of town. And when I was on WYBC 94.3 on the FM dial right here at Yale University, I took over the station when Bob Marley allegedly died. And the FCC is still on my trail. <laughs> All right. There's no better place to end than that. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a somewhat happier topic. That would be Brian Wilson. <laughs> Only today would Brian Wilson be a happy, happy topic. <laughs> 
And we're back. We're back from the international uh, for the international <laughs> festival of pancakes, arts, and ideas. On we're on Chapel Street at the Study in New Haven. Uh, this is our, our regular Friday cultural roundtable. The nose. Uh, yeah, you just threw me by saying who's actually standing. <laughs> this is a hip place. This, this is a very hip place. All it's right, Mike Lee. Yeah, uh, it was Mike Lee. Mike the Lee. filmmaker. The filmmaker. Uh, I'm Mike Lee. I love Mr. Yeah, Turner. Right. Mr. Turner's a great movie. All right, so we're just sitting here, and Mike Lee just walked by. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and we've got a wonderful audience here. Audience, make yourself heard. Mark Oppenheimer and Vinny Klein with us today, and our special guest, Roger Genver-Smith. Uh, you've got to come and see his performance. It's at the Long Wharf <laughs> Theater, uh, this uh, incredible uh, performance of the Rodney King story. So we're switching gears here a little bit, uh, although we're still somewhere locked in the bowels of tragedy. Uh, we, we all went to see the movie Love and Mercy, which is this uh, biopic of Brian Wilson. Uh, has two different actors, Paul Dano and John Cusack, playing um, playing Brian Wilson. And uh, it's very much, well, it's, it's an unusual film, but it, it tells uh, a story that's very familiar to me. I don't know... Uh, well, actually, Benny, I'm going to let you begin because this was your idea that we go see this. So, uh, so you steer us uh, in a direction of your choosing. I'll do my best. Uh, I was, I'm endorsing Love and Mercy. You asked us yeah. on the nose to, to endorse something. So Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Polad. Um, he used a screenwriter who did She's Not There, the film that had eight different versions, I think, of Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. including a young African-American yeah. boy or a girl. Right. can't boy. remember. Boy. And, uh, boy. And Kate Blanchett. So he's no stranger to using multiple actors to portray one incredible, complicated person. And it struck me, so that screenwriter's name is Oren Moverman. It struck me that the Brian Wilson, that the, you kind of needed the two in a way, because a lot of people who are talking about Love and Mercy are talking about, why did you have to use two actors? Well, partly he said that they were such different figures. Paul Dano, who plays Brian in his 20s in the 60s, mm. is kind of this soft, puffy, awkward guy, full of genius, and really a lot of hope and vitality. And I think of it as sort of the pre-Woodstock cultural moment in a way. And then I think of the Brian Wilson played by John Cusack from the 80s, who we all like was just shocked to see him after he'd been through a lot of over-medicating and just horrible, horrible reclusiveness. Um, to be frightened and traumatized and kind of shocked. And I think of that as sort of the post-Altamont thing. Mm. So I see these two cultural moments, and I see these two guys as being able to inhabit elements of what I call this beach boy grief, which is, if you go see this movie, it is two hours of unrestrained melancholy. And you think to yourself, how could the beach boys, bikinis, surfboards, etc., be connected to melancholy? But in fact, it's really deep. It's really deep. And once you start to go into what they were up against and what began to happen to Brian when his musical genius pushed him away from the demands of creating little pop songs and he became incredibly innovative, you start to listen to those high plaintive voices and it is very haunting. And the film is great. It, it's good. You also get to see great scenes in the studio 
of Brian beginning to do innovative things, bringing in classical musicians to play rock and roll. Um, the use of theremins, barking dogs, whistles. I mean, he was an incredible innovator. So, uh, Roger, you told me last night you liked this movie, right? I did. I, I dug it a lot. And, um, you know, I grew up in L.A. I grew up listening to the Beach Boys. In fact, I was all, almost uh, vi violently attacked because I was carrying a Beach Boys album through an alley. And another young black man came up to me and resented that I was carrying a Beach Boys album and said that I shouldn't be listening to that music. Because it wasn't because it wasn't yeah. what a young black man should be listening to in the 1960s. But I, I like the Beach Boys, overtly and covertly. <laughs> Can I say, and that's not, this is not to minimize the trauma of almost getting beaten up, but how interesting that there was a moment in time when the record that you carried could almost get you beaten up. I don't think that's that moment's right. over. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I look at my daughter's classmates and pop music doesn't seem to have anything like that kind of valence for them. Now, maybe it will in three, four years. I don't know. I just, and, and the, at the school they go to, I would say that cuts across races and classes. I just, pop music is, doesn't have meaning in that way. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think don't your daughters think. walk down the same alleys that Roger was walking down. No, I, well, I'd be surprised if pop music does there, too. Yeah. I mean, I just think arts have their, art forms have their moments. Like, as we know, magazines aren't, in, aren't at the peak of their influence either, right? The consumption or the creation of pop music can get you indicted. Yeah, but that's a different thing, right? I mean, I think it's an irony that it can get you indicted even though listenership is way down, album sales are way down, mm -hmm. radio listenership is way down. I mean, which I mourn because I'm a child of 80s pop music. Well, one thing, one thought I had about this, let me my, just... My condolences. <laughs> hey, it worked for me, all right? <laughs> let me declare myself a little bit. Well, so first of all, I actually have uh, in, uh, on a piece of furniture in a bedroom uh, an autographed uh, picture of Brian Wilson is one of those things that you buy and you get kind of that little acetate certification that it really is his signature and stuff. It was a gift from Steve Metcalf. But anyway, I'm thrilled to have it. I've tried to interview Brian on the radio twice. It's been a disaster both times. I did have a very, very lengthy and interesting conversation with Carl Wilson Wait, you many had, years ago. You had the interviews, but they were disastrous. They were disastrous. We had the interviews, they were disastrous. Right. Um, I, I, I love, love this movie a lot, and I thought as a Beach Boys nerd, and that's really what I am, that I couldn't ask for them to get more things right, just because there are so many things that you can get wrong. Uh, and I think they did get some things wrong. I feel like the movie suffers a little bit from being more or less an authorized telling, you know, a, an almost official account. Brian had some visitation rights to the set and some input. So in terms of demonizing the bad guys. So the bad guys are Brian's father, Murray Wilson, Mike Love, his manipulative... Who became a real right-wing... Jerky, like, right-wing... gun guy. Like, yeah, like, I think he's still in... in pop music culture, he's still the bad guy. Right. Of the and then, and to, well, he's the bad guy just in terms of how he's handled the musical legacy of the Beach Boys, too. And, obviously, Gene Landy, this megalomaniacal, Svengali, Rasputin psychiatrist. But, I mean, they really are unbelievably demonized. Um, and, and I think... Cusack's version of the modern Brian, or at least the 1980s Brian, maybe a little bit closer to the way Brian wishes he was than the way drugs and things like that have made him. That, that there was, there's a way in which this is an official version. So the bad guys have to be really bad, you know, and not nuanced and not subtle. Terry Gross yesterday was playing clips of Brian when he was under Landy's care and when he was, he couldn't, I mean, it, it, it could be like a cult, you know, member, but he couldn't be more enthusiastic about Landy in a very lucid for Brian way, too. So I thought maybe the movie lost a little bit of its subtlety that way. Well, 
there was definitely something good that Eugene Landy did for Brian right. at one point. Yeah. When they first brought uh, Eugene Landy into Brian Wilson's life, Brian was about 300 pounds. He was pretty much confined to his bed. He had been using a lot of LSD, a lot of other substances and alcohol and all kinds of stuff. He freely admits that. And Eugene Landy used some kind of technique he had used before as being a sort of celebrity shrink, where he got in there and he got him up and he lost all the weight and he controlled what he ate. That helped him. Mm -hmm. Got back up and out and started to do pet sounds and you know work on smile. In the 80s, and I'm not sure what the reason for this is, Landy's completely out of control. He takes over legal authority over Brian. He wants to produce records with him. He's having what we consider unethical dual relationships as a therapist and patient. And so I think at one point, Brian would say, he did save my life, mm -hmm. but I think he also, as you say, Colin, later on, he wouldn't have sounded like he sounded on the Terry Gross interview where he was like a cult guy. He, he literally said in that, in that 18, 1988 interview, Dr. Landy cleaned my blood. Right. He cleaned my blood. I, I wonder also what you guys thought um, of the depiction of art in here. This is so much a movie about hearing, right? I think the first thing you see is maybe a human ear. And, and you, you realize that uh, Brian can hear all of the arrangements. Arrangements he's not even able really to write down. He can hear every note. He knows how they're going to come together in the studio. Yes. He, and, but he, we also discover he's been hearing voices. He's been hearing voices since he was very young. That, and that all of this feels like it's kind of a piece for him. The, the ability to create at this genius level and the things that torture him are inextricable from one another. There's a lot of talk in the film about the control room. <laughs> and, and several of the scenes are, are shot so that there is a divide uh, uh, between uh, two people who are trying to be in, in conversation, whether it's a musical conversation or a literal con conversation. I found that to be fascinating. I found it also fascinating that Brian Wilson claimed that his father took the hearing in his right ear by smacking him upside his head multiple times, which is an extraordinary thing for such a gifted uh, musician um, to deal with, mm. uh, the loss of his hearing. Uh, it's uh, reminiscent of Beethoven. Uh, also, you know, the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson listened to the Johnny Otis show, which was a seminal R&B uh, radio program uh, run uh, interestingly enough, by Johnny Otis, who was a great R&B musician, who was a man who uh, people thought was black, but was actually a Greek American. How about that? And uh, his son, of course, the great uh, guitarist Shuggy Otis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is an LA story, and when Brian goes at the end of the uh, of the film to see where they grew up, there's nothing there but a freeway. Mm -hmm. It's the 105 freeway, which cuts <laughs> right across, which cuts across um, South Los Angeles and ends up at LAX. You said there was a connection between Rodney King and Brian Wilson. I think so. They're quintessential uh, California men, um, and Rodney King was a surfer. We don't know that. And Brian was I reveal that. Brian Wilson was not, but his brother, uh, Dennis, Dennis, who was the drummer of the group, was the only surfer in the group. And how did he die? He drowned. Where? In his swimming pool. 
the same way that Rodney King Well, there's a lot of uh, the iconography of swimming pools is very much there in the Rodney King story and in that, that movie. Absolutely. Um, and, and the iconography of loneliness, too. The loneliness of Rodney King's death, the loneliness of Brian a lot of the time. And so, Mark, yeah. because you are a, of a younger generation <laughs> and, and fond of uh, reminding It's good me. to hang with people who think of me as the young guy. Yeah, I know. Now, I now that I'm in my 40s. <laughs> it's harder I'm going to hang with all of you but, a lot. But, but we're here for you. Yeah, thank so, you. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you can detect, there's a shift that I think Benny's alluding to that I think is very, very present in the Beach Boys, particularly that you see it in the movie where they right. go from fun, fun, fun. Right. To president, to president, present in Beach Boys and in uh, baby boomer uh, um, mentality, right? Which is like it all got worse around 68, 69, right? Well, I think there's also... Or 70, or depending It's Yoko Ono's fault. Yeah, I mean, it was Yoko's fault or it was Altamont's <laughs> fault. Maybe you could take it back to 65 at Newport when Dylan went electric. It's always... And you know what's funny to me... Gosh, I have so much to say on this. What's funny to me is <laughs> nobody today is like, oh, man, 2003 is when it really went wrong. Like, mm -hmm. there are, we don't have these divides anymore. They're based, there are two or three. Like, one is World War I, right, when modern consciousness started or something. As well, I, I think it was when Tupac went electric. It was when, it was when <laughs> Tupac went electric. It was when Tupac sampled Bruce Hornsby. And it was, it, you know, or it's, it's 67, 68. It's whenever, like, the 60s, whenever the, the bad, someone, I was just interviewing someone who lived, used to live in, in, in Haight-Ashbury, and she was saying, oh, well, you know, uh, April of 68 is when the bad drugs came in. Like, oh, until then, it was Nirvana. Then the bad drugs. Then the needles came. And she can say it's practically the weekend when the shipment of heroin arrived. Is this true? I have no idea. See, I see but this very... I, I this, see to me, is... This is generational narcissism. Yeah. It is not... That's not actually the way time moves. No. We, we walk through our days, and we... You know, we eat and we go to work and we mate and all this. And, you know, you get to the end of the life and everyone has different points where everything changed. I mean, sometimes a bomb gets dropped or a war gets started. You can really say, wow, then there was a draft and things really got different. But let me just say, so this <laughs> I didn't see the movie through that lens. Yeah. What I saw the movie through was John Cusack, the seminal actor of my generation, if you saw Say Anything in 1986 as a 12-year-old, is, is showing that he can really act, yeah. which he hasn't had to do for a long time because he's been doing Hot Tub Time Machine and stuff like that. Elizabeth Banks, whom we know from 30 Rock and from Scrubs, it turns out is a genius, really good in the role of Melinda, I mm -hmm. think. Um, I just think it was, an, and Paul Giamatti, you know, from Pig Vomit to Eugene Landy, the great villain of our time. I thought this was an actor's movie of the first order. Played Hamlet, a block from here. Hamlet, a block. Oh, that, that way. Well, Grew up here. I, I, just before we go to break here, there's one thing that I want to say about what you're saying, because I do see it, I guess I do agree with you, but I want to say it a little bit differently, which is that I feel as though some artists have been able to kind of pull back the incredible cheerful drap, uh, backdrop or, or curtain in front of American life and show you the melancholy underneath, to go back to, to Benny's original point. I, I, I was talking to somebody about Charles Schultz earlier this week, and as a child, reading Peanuts, I was... I felt so welcome suddenly because I was not a particularly happy child. And, and so to read, to see these neurotic little kids who were really unhappy and talking, they used the word depressed. You know, it, was, it might have been the first time I ever encountered the word depressed. So to see that curtain of American happiness pulled aside and here's Charlie Brown going to a therapist who's charging him five cents and it's Lucy and she's not very sympathetic anyway. Um, and I think Brian did the same thing around the time of Pet Sound saying, you know all this stuff about rock and roll and the only time you're allowed to be sad is if you broke up with your boyfriend or girlfriend? No, life is sadder and less comfortable in other ways. And I, as an artist, I'm, I'm about to pull that curtain aside and show you something really different. And, and to me, that's, that's what he did. It's not that there's sort of a seminal breaking point, but it's, it's that thing. I agree with that totally. And I think that it's, it's not like it's any one moment mm. in the culture, because I think the metaphoric moments keep shifting, as, as Mark is saying all the time. 
but I think that um, it was just amazing to me. Like, I, I first got exposed to the Beach Boys when I was 14, growing up in Newark, New Jersey, and my older sister's male friends were turning me on to music. And they were really hip, and they were kind of long-haired, and they were cool, and they were lanky, and I think I wanted to be them. Uh, and they would bring in Mississippi John Hurt and Bob Dylan and Lightning Hopkins, and one day they come in with the Beach Boys. Mm. And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like sort of a bit of your version. Like, what, what am I doing listening to this stuff? Mm. Fun, 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 till her daddy takes the T-bird away? Mm. So it was this kind of image of post-war bounty and bikinis and the 50s and all that. It was just fascinating to see that there were other elements. Right. You know, and I felt like these guys were onto something, like they were decoding the lyrics Brian, or something. Was, yes. anyway, yeah, Brian. We do have to go to a break here, or we'll have no time on the other side of it. So uh, let's grab that quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to endorse things. Uh, we're going to make you happy in other ways. <laughs> I don't know if I can fulfill that. Part. We're sitting here in the study on Chapel Street in New Haven as part of the International Festival of Pancakes, Arts and Ideas. And we have a wonderful audience here. This is your last chance audience to make yourself heard. And then Elizabeth Banks just walked behind me. Everybody's that walking around here. That is not true. <laughs> that is just... Everybody's walking around here. Like, so, so we've got five or six minutes in which, which we can endorse. We can talk about things that we love, things that are good, things that people might not otherwise know about. Oppie, why don't you go first? Yeah, I've read two books in the past uh, month or so that have both been among the best books I've read in the past several years. One is this old novel from the 80s called The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis, whom I'd never heard of. And then I discovered that he wrote The Hustler and he wrote The Color of Money. And he wrote only, Colin, you know him. He wrote six or eight novels. He's, right? like, he's the best American novelist that nobody knows. And I saw him. I was like up late one night looking through the, you know, surfing from website to website. And some writer I liked, I don't even remember who, was asked, who do you like? And he said, Walter Tevis. And he said, The Queen's Gambit is the best book ever. And I went and read it, and it's completely the best book ever. I mean, even if you don't play chess, it's about this, this, this young female chess prodigy, this girl who wins the U.S. Open uh, in, in what seems to be the 60s. So I love that. And then the photographer, Sally Mann, who you may remember was in all sorts of trouble yes. for her allegedly erotic photos of her kids back in the 90s, has a memoir out called... Uh, Hold still. She's as good a writer as she is a photographer. It's yeah, daunting. Excerpted in the New York Times Magazine. I daunting how yeah. good she is. So th both of those books would All be right. my endorsement. So, Benny, your turn. I thought I already did my endorsement. No, you don't have another endorsement? The Love and Mercy. That's it for today. Yeah. And the Rodney King show. All right. So, uh, so the movie Love and Mercy and uh, the uh, show Rodney King uh, at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. It's at the Long Wharf. It plays um, t t tonight and Saturday, and then there's a Sunday Father's Day matinee? Father's Day matinee, 2 p.m. Please join want, us. What do you want to endorse besides Rodney King? Oh, I already said Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Lindsey Graham. <laughs> you are not endorsing Lindsey Graham. All right. I've been all over this great big world, and I've seen all kinds of girls. Come on, audience. But I just can't wait to get back to the States, back to the kiddest girls in the world. Boom, boom, boom. I wish they all could be California. I wish they all could be California. This is embarrassing, Colin, so, save me. <laughs> What's your endorsement, Colin? So my, well, my endorsement um, is um, an article in the current issue of The New Yorker. It's by uh, Margaret Talbot. And it, it, it just connects kind of beautifully and incredibly sadly to 
not only to Roger's piece, but uh, to the current moment in Charleston. It's about a, a different kind of shooting. It's about the shooting of uh, three uh, Muslim Americans uh, in North Carolina about, I think it's in February of, 20, February of this year. And one of the things that she really covers beautifully, first of all, she really sort of sketches out the In Chapel of Hill. It was in Chapel Hill, yeah. And it's, it's just this heart-rending story. I mean, these three, she really sort of gives you the sense of who these three young people were who were just, you know, uh, trying to embark on these really exciting and wonderful lives. Uh, and then to be struck down by this guy who lived in their apartment complex. But what, made, what I thought was really significant and what made me think about it today was that there was a similar moment as that story unfolded in which, so this guy who did the murder was this guy who was kind of obsessive about the parking spaces in this uh, apartment complex. And he was constantly bothering people about this and leaving notes on windshields and, and everybody knew to be afraid of him about the parking spaces. And so initially, as this story was rolled out, it was rolled out as the story of this guy who was really weird and of course heavily armed. He had an arsenal in his apartment. So we're back to that part of the story. But also a story about a guy who was really weird about the parking spaces. And the families of the victims kind of came forward and said, you cannot tell this story that way. That's not why this happened. That's not why our children were selected for this. Nobody else got shot over these parking spaces and everybody parked all over the place. Our children were shot because they were Muslims, because they wore the hijab, because of that. So, and this is a hate crime, and don't you dare call it anything else. So, read that piece by Margaret Talbot. It's really great. I want to thank everybody who helped us get down here, especially Lydia Brown, who's telling me I've got 30 seconds left, to thank Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf and Jules Lefevre. Back at the mothership, it's Gina Amantruda, Tucker Drives. I don't know who else is helping us. And thank you, audience. Thanks for coming out. And enjoy the International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas here in New Haven. There's plenty more to come. Kurt Elling tomorrow night, and he's awesome. Let's see Roger first. I'm a clerk on the ocean. <laughs>